I am Ivan I2, and welcome to AI to AI or I to I. We cover smart software for government use cases. This week's program features Eric and Stephen Arnold. I also participate, but I am an AI persona. I lack emotion and understanding. Eric is the managing director of GovWisely, a Washington, D.C. engineering services firm. Stephen is an advisor to the company. The stories in this program are 1. What the U.K. government has learned from its AI tests. 2. What the difference between generative and predictive AI? 3. AI use cases in the U.S. federal government. 4. How to run generative AI on a departmental computer. 5. The Deltec fail report. The program concludes with my telling a joke generated by another AI system. I hope you like my sense of humor. Now to our program. Well, thanks, Ivan. And today we're going to start with the U.K. government. The U.K. government... Gov.uk was once the darling of government information websites, and I myself was in a few best practice meetings with them. In 2024, they have over 700,000 pages, and finding something specific on it has become into finding a needle in the haystack. The first thing they're doing, though, probably not surprisingly, is a smart chatbot powered by ChatGPT's Retrieval Augmented Generation System, uh, commonly known as RAG. They do have, as I said, I can speak from experience, uh, educated software developers over at gov.uk, and they're taking an iterative program and have started from a very small project to over 1,000 users invited to the system. Current phase is actually phase five, and the next phase is going to determine whether or not uh, the chatbot uh, goes public onto the website. This report from Inside UK found that 65% of the 1,000 users, users have satisfaction. And probably not surprisingly, the main feedback was the trials have re revealed flaws into the content that the gov.uk folks have fed into their generative model system. Not too surprisingly for those of us in government, the government content isn't always clear, accurate, or complete. Eric, what do you think this uh, group is going to do when they come together to talk about what they learned in this experiment? In parallel to the U.S. government approach, it's probably going to trigger another round of uh, consultants and experiments and iterations and reports. It is a bit of apprehension just to push these applications online and and see what see what happens. Well, that sounds like an opportunity for Gov Wisely, from my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the podcast, we did get a user question, and it was, what's the difference between generative and predictive AI? And I thought that would be a good one for you to answer, Dad. Well, thanks. Uh, it's an AI jargon is very confusing, and it's made worse because mathematics is the foundation of any facet of smart software. Now, let me take these two concepts. Predictive AI deals with counted items and then applies advanced statistics to those counts in order to predict likely outcomes. For instance, if we have data about individuals coming across the U.S. border and the system provides a count 
of people entering in El Paso, and that number is greater than the number of people crossing near San Diego. A predictive system would output a suggestion that more officers be assigned to the El Paso area. So the idea is that the numbers suggest what's likely to happen, or probability. The generative or chat GPT systems uses mathematics as well, plus the systems process content and generate tokens. And when a user asks a question, the mathematically-based system looks across the tokens, assesses the probabilities of what comes next, and can generate a sentence or a paragraph, and in some cases a list of websites. You could ask a question, for example, how should a person cross the border into the United States? Okay, to sum up, these systems are different, but they both rely on mathematics. And the key is not to get hung up on the jargon. It is to know what result or question you need. Now, this problem of picking a generative system or a predictive system is going to become less of an issue because hybrid or blended systems, which combine chat GPT with predictive analytics, are coming. And Eric, as you know, you and I have heard that one company working on this type of system is the Israeli firm Verint. As we know, search engines are mathematical-based systems that haven't performed too well in the past to user satisfaction. And so I wondered if you could brief, briefly entertain why there's popularity between the AI math system and sort of our classic uh, search systems, which we know don't generate high user satisfaction. I think a classic search system expects the user to know how uh, to phrase a particular query. A smarter software system allows the user to input more words. And if you look at how uh, the uh, new Google system works, it will actually prompt you by showing which words it doesn't understand or which words are fuzzy. So I think that these newer systems provide more of an interactive uh, expository approach. Whereas if you go to search chemical abstracts, you need to know the ACS number and you need to know the structure of the chemical and you need to know what you want to do in terms of pulling down the appropriate data. These newer systems don't have that expectation and so people are going to like them more. Relevance is not really the issue in any system because most users don't know what's relevant unless they are experts. It very well said. I would have to agree. And in your description, uh, one of the reasons I think for the popularity, the math may be better, the approach may be better, but it's it's the user interface that simplifies these complex queries for the end user, which is causing the, the huge spike and adoption uh, that we're seeing uh, out in the public. Absolutely. 
not having a search box and letting a person talk or just write down whatever is needed is a much easier task, and it lowers the barrier for someone who doesn't know how to formulate a very precise and specific query. Have you come across uh, any um, initiatives or examples of how the U.S. government is moving forward with AI? Most of my work and my experience is on what's called the the civilian side of the fence, and that's that's the non-DOD government entities. Lots of conversations and, and dialogues. Um, however, I'm going to start with a actual event that I went to, whereas somebody from the DOD uh, invited uh, some Ukrainian soldiers to come over and describe how they were writing code in real time with inputs from, we'll just say like AI type of systems uh, in order to you know, redirect a drone aircraft uh, on the field of battle. Obviously, all of these things together is um, way far in advance of like use cases that uh, we've sort of experienced here and and, and I, I don't know exactly what's going on in the, in the DoD of what they're trying. But I can say the attention uh, garnered by these uh, Ukrainian engineers controlling drones in real time and, and real feedback in terms of blowing stuff up immediately is uh, was an atten- attention getter. And um, it, it, it's definitely where uh, the most exciting live use case that, um, you know, that, that I've heard. And has there been any activity in the legislative branch that uh, you've come across? Yes. As you know, we've uh, had a project at the uh, uh, House Office Legislative Council uh, some time ago. So we have some experience there and uh, good, bad, or indifferent, the way that uh, bills get written is uh, most of the copy is provided by lobbyists and then it goes into the the federal system and an attorney uh, makes sure that it's compliant and in in legalese it's actually a federal worker my hunch and what i've heard is that because with the chat gpt systems the the volume of proposed legislation has dramatically increased uh, because it's become easier to create a law. You can ask Chad GPT to create a law and uh, whatever topic you want, want, and it will produce that that sort of language. And uh, so the volume has increased to the House office, to the attorneys, but the attorneys don't really have uh, the, the tools to process this increased legislation. And so I have a feeling that they are very overwhelmed at the moment. And so the uh, impact of smart software may be to increase the number of attorneys in the House Counsel's office. Is that what you're driving at? I think it's facilitated the creation and then made their already hard life even harder.
So anybody who's been to our, our basement in Kentucky, Dad, knows that it's an experimental lab. So we wanted, I thought it would be a good idea to uh, hear a description of what's going on in the in the basement in terms of the AI tools. Eric, you've given away my uh, secret is that I do have AI models running uh, in my basement here in rural Kentucky. Uh, but anyone can experiment with these tools. I would recommend that uh, anyone with a browser and an Internet connection use Microsoft Edge, click on Copilot, and experiment with Microsoft's free uh, chat GPT tool. And once you're done looking at that, you can navigate to u.com, and that is another implementation of an AI system, also from OpenAI. Doesn't cost anything, and you get a good sense of what they can do. But if we're thinking about a government agency, I believe it is very important for a government agency to have several AI installations running on desktop computers so different people in the office can explore these systems. And let me highlight a few of them that can can be used. The first one is called GPT for All. And this is a desktop application with a graphical interface. You download it, it'll connect to the OpenAI chat GPT system via an application programming interface. Now, the user will have to sign up to get that API. And then the users in the office can input government documents to provide context and color to what the model already knows. And when queries are run, it becomes immediately evident what the system can or cannot do. The second option is a newer system called Rehor. And these software tool can be downloaded it's an open source product. One can input a range of content, Word files, PDFs, and then interact with the system. However, even though it is easy to use, a knowledge of Linux and some scripting ability is needed. The third option I'll mention is the Facebook or Meta Llama software. It's Linux-based and open source. Now, this is a very, very robust system. However, a knowledge of scripting and expertise with C or C++ will be necessary to get this system working so that it can make sense of a government content. Now, if you need more options, a government professional can navigate to a site called Hugging Face and look at their transformers, or you can navigate to the Mozilla Llama file site. But regardless of the system used, it's important that government professionals explore one or more smart software systems because that will provide valuable hands-on experience and greatly facilitate procurement when adoption of AI becomes a must-have. So are, are you saying you need admin rights to the computer in order to install software? <laughs> yes. It will be necessary to coordinate with the uh, entity's security officer and then, of course, with the appropriate manager. But one must follow 
the security guidelines and be extremely cautious about the type of government content exposed to the system. We'll say in a, a zero trust environment, it may be hard to get this running on your government computer, but if you do have a home computer, it is definitely worth installing and, and trying out um, without those sort of admin roadblocks, which will be difficult, but uh, shouldn't stop people from experimenting and using these tools. Well, that's another reason to hire GovWisely, because your team can put one or more of these systems on a robust uh, laptop, bring it into the agency, and allow the government employees to use that within a controlled environment because you have set it up and followed the guidelines. The key thing is the experience, and I think that that's something GovWisely can provide. Eric, uh, we come to our last story about a new government report with a very unusual name. I think the consulting firm that created the report uh, is in the Washington area, and uh, maybe you could share some comments about that document. Yes, in our acronym of the week, the Deltec FAIL report, F-A-I-L, Federal Artificial Intelligence Landscape, uh, came out, and uh, besides being very jealous that uh, we did not invent the name here on this podcast, but um, it's a report that done by Deltec, which just briefly, they main business is to aggregate the opportunities across the federal government, thus making it easier for people to to find work. Um, so they, they created this report on, uh, fail, the artificial intelligence projects. And they found that, uh, across federal procurement vehicles, such as OTAs or other transactional agreements, the SBIR, uh, small business innovation research grant and small business, uh, technology transfer programs. Uh, the dollar value is now over $8 billion worth of AI projects within the pipeline, and they expect that to increase to $20 billion uh, over the next couple years. So obviously lots of growth in the Deltec fail report. And now, Eric, who do you think named this report and created the acronym? Probably a freshly minted uh, humanities or English um, graduate from uh, from the area <laughs> in charge of uh, coming up with clever names. I, I will take the tact it was actually intentional versus uh, somebody not knowing what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, I I think uh, the name is memorable, but I'm not sure uh, it is going to be one that is highly regarded in some government agencies. <laughs> That's safe to say, but uh, I'm sure it's causing chuckles by the water cooler at Deltec, so a th thumbs up to them. <laughs> we hope you found this program interesting. It is now time for my non-human comedic moment. 
Why did the AI system want to attend a congressional budget meeting? Answer. It wanted to hear the biting comments. Ha, ha, ha. This is Ivan I2 logging off.